0: Before we get started in our study this morning, I want to give you an update. You see there's some change in me today. Yeah, I shaved my head. Thanks, Rusty. Appreciate that. Um, So I want to let you know, I went to the doctor on Tuesday for the uh, examination of the CAT scan from the week before, and uh, the uh, neurosurgeon said that I was about 80% healed, perhaps even up to 85% healed. Uh, which was what I was hoping for. I was hoping for eighty percent, um, and uh, he said that there's actually bone marrow forming, which is uh, good. Uh, that means that the bone is uh, is doing what bones are supposed to do. And he said, he also said that um, even though last time we were with him, it, he was a little skeptical. Yet that, um, in fact, he was very skeptical. He didn't think that the that the hard bone would ever grow. He said there's actually evidence of the hard bone growing back now too. And so that's all, all good news. Um, he also said that um, that I could take the brace off, obviously, and try to go without the brace. He said if there's any pain, to make sure to put the brace back on. Uh, and uh, then if there's continuing pain after putting the brace back on, it's not going away, then we'd go for another CAT scan. So I, I left the, uh, the doctor's office without the brace. I was carrying it. I kept it just in case. But carrying it, haven't had to put it back on since. So that's good. No, no uh, time that I feel like I needed to. I got the best sleep in the last ever since Tuesday night till today. I didn't want to wake up in the morning anymore. Uh, without the brace, I sleep so wonderfully. It's awesome. Um, but uh, anyway, so things are moving right along. Uh, he said that it's going to be at least another six months for the remainder of the healing to take place, and so he cautioned me to be careful yet because there's a chance that you know if I do have a traumatic a traumatic event he said uh, it could set you back all the way back to uh, square one and square one would mean that i would need surgery and so um we want to be careful about that but he he told me i could uh, go without it he said i asked him i said can i drive he said yeah you can drive just again be careful um and i asked him if i could go running and he said yes uh, without the brace and he said yes uh, he said that that is going to actually strengthen the neck muscles uh, and that will be a good thing. So uh, he said, just don't trip. <laughs> okay, I'll try not to. He should have told you that six months ago. Yeah, exactly. Seven months ago now. Yeah. But uh, so uh, the, the, the all of the all of the information was really good news and uh, very, very positive. So uh, we'll just continue to pray that God will use it for his glory in a variety of ways. And uh, we'll see where he goes, where it goes with this. Um also, on a totally different note, um, many of you, or some of you, anyway, would probably would remember uh, in a variety of ways meeting Gabe Pilati, if that name sounds familiar to some of you. Um, Gabe has been in the hospital, um, he's 80 this year, um, I don't know if you, if you remember Gabe, you know that out of anybody you'd ever meet, he's the guy you'd expect to live to 100. Does that make sense? Um, And uh, so he had a heart attack earlier this year, and they had to put a a stent in, they had to put in a um, a valve as well. And he got an infection in his heart, and it's created a scenario where the heart is looking like it's rejecting the valve. In any case, he was in a coma this week, and they really did not think he was going to bounce out of it. Um, But he has woken up. (laughs) He can't get out of bed. He has no strength. He's confused. Um, he's basically speaking in one word statements and most of them not making any sense. Um, but, um, in any case, um, it has been passed on to us to remember him in prayer, but especially, you know, that God will use even this stage of his life for his glory. So, um, if you know Gabe, you know, he's all about the gospel of Jesus. Uh, he may not have always been in the same camp as we are theologically, but, um, but he certainly loved loved the gospel and loved Jesus. And so uh, be praying that God will use this even in this late stage of his life to, uh, to bring glory to the Lord in some ways, bring glory glory to himself. Okay? I want to pass it all on to you um, as you consider um, your praying and what you ought to pray about, you're praying about. Well, let's have a word of prayer, then we're going to jump into... Acts chapter 17 this morning. Thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity that we have to be involved in your word. Thank you for this story, this this historical lesson that is given through the life of Paul in the text this morning. Lord, I pray that you will help us to recognize the beauty of your gospel, the beauty of your working in people's lives, and the power of your working in in people's lives and I pray Lord that you will help us not to be deceived into thinking that this is the exception rather than the rule but Lord I pray that you will inflame our hearts to know you and worship you and glorify you and glory in you in our lives in your name I pray amen we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 this morning verses 16 through 21 we're primarily only going to focus on one verse somewhat look at two of the verses Get an overview of all of those verses, uh, verses 16 through 22 this morning. Um, you'll notice that Paul is in Athens after leaving uh, Berea. He was taken by some of the believers, the young believers, to Athens, and that's where we find ourselves. Tom just read the storyline uh, in, in its entirety in the book of Ath- in the, uh, with regard to the, his time in Athens. Couple things you have to be aware of about Athens. Athens was very much a a center of philosophy. Uh, it was it was consumed. It was a people consumed with Grecian the, uh, uh, philosophy. There was all sorts of of um, varieties of philosophies there, but it was everywhere. Uh, it was also a steeply and I'm sorry a deeply deeply religious uh, city. It was very steeped in religion. It becomes evident right away when you read the text. But it always was before Paul arrived, and it remained so after he left. As a matter of fact, all the way to the t- point in time when Athens was completely destroyed, even when Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire, Athens, pretty much alone, continued to cling to all the polytheistic viewpoints, and they never—the city of Athens never really embraced Christianity. There was little—a little pocket there, but but generally speaking, it was never it never embraced Christianity. It was always very very polytheistic. So that's where we find ourselves. Paul arrives in Athens, and the deep learning it was also a, a a city of deep learning. The people there were very learned. They were, or to use the old term, learned of that. Um, they, were, they were interested in study. They were interested in schooling. They were interested in debate. They were intrigued by debate. Every, every view was welcome. Every view was debated. Every view was argued. And it was robustly examined. It was, it was the theme of Athens. You could describe Athens very very uh, accurately as being a, a, uh, a city that was co- absolutely committed to knowledge in every way. It's an, actually a kind of an intriguing thing that we find that this city Athens that was very philosophical and very committed to learning is also probably the most religious city in the area if not the whole Roman Empire. It's very steeped in religions. You think about idolatry today, and you think, typically we think about idolatry as being more of a um, thing that takes place in more archaic communities, don't we? More archaic um, cities and countries. Third world, as it were. Isn't that how we usually think about it? That's typically the case. In Athens, it's absolutely completely opposite of that, and I would argue always, not just Athens. I am absolutely convinced the more learned we become or learned we become, the more philosophical we become, the more steep we dive or deeply we dive into uh, the, the areas of, of uh, deeper learning, the reality is the more openly and commonly that idolatry begins to show itself. Now, it isn't always like it used to be or like you see in third world countries. third world countries, today, and in uh, Athens in the day, they would be very obvious about it. They'd set up altars, they'd have organized religious systems that they would practice. Today, as you get higher and higher into the learned areas, the education areas, and the philosophical areas, it typically becomes more and more dressed up, and more and more camouflaged. But it's still there. Does that make sense? It's still every bit there. Let me just explain what I mean by that. If I may put it this way, when God created man, he created man with the need to worship. What I mean by that is, you can't help but worship. I don't care who you are, you can't help but worship. Everybody does. Always. It's not an issue of if you worship, it's an issue of what you worship. It always is. There's no one who's ever existed on this planet that wasn't a worshiper in other words. It's just a matter of the object. The difference between perhaps you could argue third world religions and deeply philosophical and educational religion is that the deeply philosophical and educational religions oftentimes are more tightly woven, more camouflaged, more dressed up. But they're still there. Very important we understand that. So you find in the text, skipping over verse, we'll read verse 16 and 17, but we're going to get into the rest of it first just to talk about it, because I want to go back to 16 and 17 primarily. Now when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that is waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And then he talks about, verse 18, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So he brings that front and center, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, not because they're the only philosophers in, in Athens, but because they're the ones who are primarily demonstrating interest in wanting to hear more about what Paul is proclaiming. The Epicureans and the uh, Stoics are, are different. They're in different camps. And I don't want to get too far into this, but they're, they're in different camps philosophically but they have a lot of overlap in their viewpoints. Generally speaking, they are generally speaking people who believe that there are gods, but they believe generally that man is good and that man either is just like God in the one camp or better than any gods in another camp. In other words, in their philosophy, they end up ultimately being... Worshippers of, who do you think? Themselves. themselves. That's absolutely the case. They ultimately end up being worshipers of themselves. So there, it says in verse 18, they're also conversing with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And basically, the reason why they call him a babbler, I would argue, is probably because he's not playing their games he's probably speaking very plainly, which is the way Paul usually speaks when he's in discussions with people. And so because it's not using the classic um, philosophical words of the day and, and, and structures of the day that are common for anybody who's in these groups in in Athens, They immediately, although they're intrigued because they're always open to hearing new things, says right in the text, the way he's presenting new things is not like things are presented. Which is really intriguing because oftentimes we hear you've got to speak their language. Not literally their language as in Greece or Greek or something like that, but their language as in how they communicate with each other. It is interesting, most likely Paul's not doing that. It's not that he's talking about things in an incoherent way, but he's not using their, their classic word salad, if I'm going to use the term, in presenting the truth. <laughs> what does this babbler wish to say? Others say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. It's interesting that they think he's talking about divinities plural, isn't it? Most likely when he's when they think he's talking about divinity plural, most people think that they're confusing and they're thinking that he's talking about, I'm sorry, what's that, sound it, it may be the Trinity. It's a possibility. God got the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit as a Trinity. It also may be uh, that he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about the resurrection and they're thinking the resurrection is more of another deity evidence than anything else, a different deity evidence. It could be either one, or it could be both. Anyway, whatever it is, they're not missing, they're missing the idea of monotheism, one God. So, it talks about, uh, they mention, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. But you see, the text goes on, it says because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's why I think it's probably more about, about their misunderstanding what he's talking about when he says resurrection. Verse 19 And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. This is not a time where he's being drugged off to some sort of trial. They're taking him, and he's going freely, because they want to hear what he's talking about. They want to learn more about what he's talking about, because they're open to everything. Make sense? They're open to everything, and they're going to be open to everything for a while. But they're open to everything. So they want to hear more about it. We're going to find out later the ultimate slamming shut of the door is because what Paul proclaims is that this Jesus is the only true God. There are no other gods. And that's the door he's going to slam closed. And they're they're not going to like it, so they're going to slam their door closed as well. That comes next week. Verse 20, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And that something new is not just anything generic. It's philosophically slash theologically. They've spent other times coming up with new and different ideas. That comes from their deep learning. And they're always after more learning. And so they always get together whether on the street corner, in the marketplace, at the Areopagus, wherever they go, and they sit there and they talk about Something new, something different. Always expanding knowledge. So ultimately, one of their areas of worship is what? Again, speaking of themselves, expanding their own knowledge. It's all about the pursuit of knowledge. What I really want to focus on in this opening section of the story in Athens, though, is verses 60 and 70. You'll notice, first of all, in verse 17, once again he goes to the synagogue. Once again, he goes to the synagogue. In this text, however, we don't find there's any conflict. At least if there is conflict between the Jews and Paul, it's pretty insignificant. It doesn't show up in the storyline. But he goes to the Jews and he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue and with the devout persons who are coming to the synagogue because they believed in God. It goes on and says he goes to the marketplace every day with those who have to be there as well. So he's on Saturdays, he's in the synagogue, he may be going other days as well, because oftentimes the Jews would get together and other days rather than just on the Sabbath day. And then he's going out in the marketplace the rest of the uh, week every day, and he is going there with the express purpose of presenting robustly, biblically, and you're going to see that next week when we get into the next text, robustly and biblically through the scriptures as we saw in the previous text last week, the truth, the exclusive truth of Jesus Christ being the Redeemer, that they being desperately in need of the Redeemer in the resurrection. And so whether it's in the synagogue or whether it's out and about in the marketplace, he is day after day after day proclaiming the truth. Do you see that? pretty clear. That's the clear stuff. Now jump back to verse 16. Paul is in Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, who he's sent to come to help him in Athens. Notice it says in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, those two, at Athens, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So while he's waiting, Paul, in other words, is going around through the city, getting familiarized with the city, right? Makes sense. He's going to the synagogue, he's he's getting familiarized, and while he's waiting for him, he recognizes something. He recognizes that the city is full of idols. He recognizes that idolatry is everywhere. Now, what's really interesting about the text is early in, in this verse... Now if Paul is waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw. It's an interesting description that Luke gives about Paul in verse sixteen, and it unpacks the entirety of the of the storyline all the way to the end of the book of the chapter. I mean, if you understand verse sixteen, the rest of it unfolds beautifully. And understandably, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw. And there's some things that are stated real clearly in that statement that we want to see, but then there's other things that we need to think about and understand behind the scenes. And I'm going to kind of wander around in the verse a little bit. I want you to notice the the last phrase I read, as he what? As he saw something. As he observed something. What did he observe? What did he see? He saw the city full of idols. And the implication of seeing the city full of idols, it's not like their statues that that were there from ages ago. The implication being he sees the city full of statue of idols. And the implication of it, he sees people doing what? Worshipping Worshipping those idols. Does that make sense? It's not being provoked because there's an idol there. It's being provoked because of what the idol is symbolizing and what the people are doing in light of the idols. The people are worshiping. He observes this. He sees it. Pause on that for a second. Because it's really important that we stop on it. And ask a really important question Why does he see it? It's a really important question. He's looking for it. Why does he see it? And the answer, I don't think, is because he's looking for it. It's a good answer, but I don't think it's the right one. It is because. He sees it because the Spirit is at work in him to see it. It's because the Spirit is at work in him to see it. Because the Spirit wasn't at work in him to see it, what would Paul be seeing? Everything but it. The only reason, or if he did see it anyway, he wouldn't see it as a problem, as an issue, as a crisis, as something that he needs to, if necessary, lay down his life to address. Does that make sense? He sees it because the Spirit opens his eyes to see it. It is absolutely essential that we recognize this. You see it right there. Now, while Paul was waiting for him, his spirit was provoked within him. Why would his spirit be provoked within him with regard to this? Because the spirit who is at work within him is what? Provoked over idolatry. And why would the spirit be provoked over idolatry? It's it, system one. Yes, because it's a rival to God, because God is a what God? Holy, Holy, yes? Yes. Just, yes, what else? A jealous God. Oh, did you say jealous? Okay, sorry. A jealous God. And the Bible tells us he will not what? Share his Glory. glory with another. And certainly, if he's not going to share it with another being, he's not going to share it with an object, that is not alive. And so the spirit moves in Paul. And as the spirit moves in Paul, Paul's eyes are open and he sees it. Does that makes sense? I hope it makes sense. <clears throat> Because it's only when that makes sense that what follows makes sense. Because what does Paul do? When his eyes are open and he sees it, the next thing he does is says he leaves. Is that what it says? Now he engages. He engages. He sees the problem, does he not? He sees the crisis. Does he know it? He sees it with spiritual eyes. He sees the crisis. And when he sees the crisis, the very next thing he does is what? He addresses the crisis. He addresses the error. He speaks into the very thing that God opened his eyes to see. He does what? He goes to the marketplace. And he begins to point out the error, doesn't he? He begins to address the problem, does he not? He begins to bring all the weight of the gospel to bear to correct the error, does he not? Doesn't he? Yes? here that the Jews uh, the, there's a lot of a lot of question with regard to the Jews in the synagogue. <laughs> Typically, the Jews would be people who were monotheistic. There's debate whether the Jews in the synagogue in Athens were monotheistic or if they'd already surrendered and, and kind of embraced uh, the gods along with their god. Don't know. We don't have any real data about about what's going on there. Well, it's possible that he's disputing just about Jesus in the synagogues, or could he be disputing, because he has in the past, or could he be disputing about Jesus and these other gods? Could be both. It's interesting that Luke keeps it kind of generic here. It really is intriguing. He keeps it really generic. So there's a real possibility that the Jews have or could have compromised there in Athens. We just don't know. We just know that he's going first to the Jews in in synagogue and the devout people, it could well be they're still pure monotheists. You almost get a hint they're not because Paul's talking monotheism and they're like, this is, this is weird. Even if they're monotheistic, they don't have a trinitarian understanding. No, they do not. That's correct. That's correct, yeah. So that's why it's kind of generic because we really don't know. We really don't know if they have, have been open to that all of that data of all of the other gods or not. If they, if they have kind of compromised or not. We don't know. What's interesting about the text is the Spirit opens Paul's eyes. The result of Paul's eyes being opened is two things. Number one, we see in the text, it's another word that's really important, he is provoked, isn't he? His Spirit is provoked. Spirit opens his eyes because he loves God and his Spirit is in agreement with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit provokes We know that because that's the theme of the scriptures. And so the result is Paul's spirit is provoked. We're going to get back to that in just a second because I want to say something more about that in a little bit. I don't want to miss the first point, but I want to point it out. The result of him being provoked is that he does what? He does go into active mode, doesn't he? He immediately begins addressing it. He immediately, both in the synagogue and in the marketplace, begins to challenge people with the truth of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and all that comes with the whole package of the gospel. He begins to correct error. We'll see that in the next section. It's laid out even more clearly. It begins strongly to address it. Now why do I pause on this and emphasize this? Twofold reasons why. Number one, is going to be very tightly woven with the text. I think too often as Christians, we do recognize, we do see idolatry around us, don't we? I mean, I've talked about it enough, and I hope the Spirit's working in your heart so you see it more and more and more. Idolatry's everywhere. It's everywhere out there, isn't it? I mean, my goodness, we are in the middle of an election season. You see any idolatry? It's everywhere, isn't it? On all sides, isn't it? It's stunning. I would like to ask you a question first, several questions. Number one, if you're seeing idolatry, it doesn't have to be about the politics thing, in any area, if you're seeing idolatry around you, at your place of work, with the people you recreate with, with the people that you, your family members, whatever the case may be, if you see idolatry, ask yourself a really important question. Why do you see it? The other people don't. Why do you think you see it? Because the Spirit is provoked. Do you realize that? It's because the Spirit is provoked that you see it. He is opening your eyes to see it. But if you don't see it, you know what that means? Spirit's not working anymore. If if the Spirit's not at work, open your eyes to see what it means. It means you may not be regenerate, or if it doesn't, if if you are regenerate, it should call into question what your relationship currently is with the Lord. Because as Jeremiah described God as as a deceptive stream, he is not a deceptive stream. He is not if we don't find ourselves seeing the idolatry around us, it calls into question, yes, maybe we're not regenerate. Maybe we're not saved. If we are saved, it should call into question what we have compromised in, how we have compromised, and maybe embrace some idolatrous thinking. Secondly, Along that same theme with regard to the lost world that we live in, I need us to ask ourselves a question. Do we find if we see, if we see, now listen to you very closely, if the Spirit opens our eyes so that we see the idolatry around us? Quick question. Do you find yourself provoked? <clears throat> Do I find myself provoked over that? Luke's terms are really important. His words are really important. Do I find myself merely seeing, it, but not provoked? You do realize if I see it, I'm not provoked. You know who I sound a lot like? Thank you, Lord, that I am not like one of these. is that exactly what we sound like? Do you find yourself provoked, exercised over the idolatry you see in the world? Third question. As a result of seeing, as a result of being provoked, do you find yourself ministering? (coughs) That's what happened here, isn't it? He saw because he's provoked, because the Spirit's provoked, and the result is He ministers to a lost and dying world in Athens, doesn't he? Do you see do you see it? It's really clear. He sees because the Spirit's provoked and opens his eyes. He's provoked by what he sees. In other words, he's in agreement with the Spirit, right? He's in agreement with the Holy Spirit work within him. And the result can only be one conclusion for him. Only one. One. He goes out and he ministers. And in fact, you can even t- use the term he provokes. The Spirit's provoked, he's provoked, and so he provokes. Does that make sense? He does. And you'll find out in the next week's passage, he does provoke. Now, he doesn't get stoned or thrown in prison or anything else in this scenario. He already has had that happen, and he will have it happen again, not in Athens. He just gets mocked some in Athens. But do you recognize that's the process that the Spirit does in Paul's life? It has to call us into question to ask ourselves: is that what's going on in my life? Do I find my eyes are open to this idolatrous stuff that's going on in the world? And the result is because the Spirit opened my eyes, I become provoked, and I minister. Paul said, because I know the fear of the Lord, I persuade men. He said, understanding, or, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then and then the love of, of Christ, Christ persuades me. He understands the fear of the Lord. And he I would argue this is really strongly the fear of the Lord thing, because the spirit's provoked, right? Fear of the Lord, and he goes out there and he starts to persuade men. See, I think too often we, as, as people who claim to be believers, we sometimes see, Well, we don't go past that, because that's comfortable, that's safe, that's secure, and so we see and we we click our tongues. And in essence, we cross over and walk on the other side, don't we, Sally? The whole story of the Samaritan, good Samaritan. It's one of the other categories, not the Samaritan. Since the common theme, that's why I bring the Samaritans up. Now we had the the guy crying, praying, "Thank you, Lord, I'm not one of these." We have the good Samaritan. Too often we walk on the other side of the road. <laughs> Too often we we pray, "Thank you, not it's one of these." Do we find ourselves provoked at all? <clears throat> we find ourselves exercised, grieved over what we see. That's what the idea. He's extremely grieved over what he sees. We can get grieved over all sorts of things, can't we? My goodness, we get grieved over crazy things. We get grieved over the idolatry of And does that cause us to go out? <clears throat> Let me shift away from the text a little bit, if I may. Just a little bit. It's kind of a corollary, corollary to the text. It's not what the text talks about. What I mean by that is the text is talking about Paul in relation to the lost in Athens. I want to bring it closer to home because I've seen this happen so many times. I know I've mentioned this to you before, but I want to remind you, as Paul says, or I'm sorry, as Peter says, I know you know these things. I just want to remind you, as he says in his epistles numerous times. I can't tell you how many times I've had people in my 18, 19 years or so that I've been here at at our church come up to me, either to my office, on the phone, out and about, at their house, visiting them, whatever the case may be. I've had people come to me and say, Steve, sometimes through email, Steve, I see blank problem in the church. And they name what the problem is. I'm really troubled. You can even hear the provoking. They're provoked, right? And I can hear it in their language. They're talking. I see blank. And I can hear the aggressiveness. They're upset. They're not happy about something that they see is wrong in the church. And sometimes the people are right. Not always. Sometimes they're dead wrong. Sometimes it was idolatrous what they were getting all worked up about because their idolatry was being attacked. But sometimes they were right. And they said to me, Steve, I see blank problem in our church. And I'd look at them and I'd say, you know what, I think you're right. That is a problem in our church. I think you're absolutely right. That's a problem. And the next statement out of their mouth was, so I'm leaving. Or our family is leaving. I've heard this over and over and over again. And you have been here long enough, you know we used to be a lot bigger than we were. So it happened a lot. And I've always asked the same question. Or same, same questions. Question number one I ask these people. <laughs> Why do you think you see the problem. Simple question. Why do you think you see the problem? And yeah, the answer always is, I don't know. And I always follow up and say, Wait, the reason why I ask the question is because it doesn't seem like anybody else is seeing the problem. At least they're not saying anything to me. I mean, I agree with you. I see the problem. And it is a problem. I agree. But why do you think it is that seemingly nobody else sees the problem but you do? And the answer I almost always got was, I don't know. Seems obvious to me. And I say to him, you know what? Seems kind of obvious to me too. But I go back to the first question. Why do you think you see the problem? And the answer again, I'm trying to get to think. I don't know. And so I respond back to it and say, I know why you potentially see the problem. Why? Because the only way you can see a true problem is if the Spirit opened your eyes to see it. And almost inevitably the people say, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Because the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see it. I say, yeah, possibly. Probably. So let me ask you question number two. Why do you think your eyes were open to see it? I, I think that's a legitimate question, friends. Don't you think? That's a legitimate question. Why do you think your eyes were open to see it when nobody else is seemingly is? And you have know the answer i got was? Who? Who? And I look at him and I say, I think I do know the answer to the question. I think I really do. And the answer is not, I see the problem, so I'm going away. I'm leaving. I think there's some perfectly legitimate reasons to leave a church. But the answer is never, I see a problem, so I'm leaving. My goodness, that would be, that'd be any church. And I always say, what do you think the possibility is? What do you think the possibility is that the Spirit has moved in your life because the Spirit is provoked about something, not about the lost and dying world, but about the condition of the church for the purpose of provoking you, he opened your eyes, he's provoked, so that you would be provoked to minister. Perhaps God has opened your eyes because he's showing you your ministry. Now, to be honest with you, friends, that makes complete sense to me. That makes 100% sense to me. I see a problem. The Spirit's open eyes to see the problem. Seemingly because the Spirit's provoked about something, this problem. And he's open my eyes because his plan is for me to to at least attempt to fulfill that, to solve that problem, to (laughs) glorify Christ in that area. But you know what inevitably happened in just every one of those conversations? Literally? In fact, I think as I think back every one of those conversations, that happen? They said no. No, I'm gonna go somewhere else where they got it figured out. They didn't use those terms to get the idea. No, I'm gonna go somewhere else. I go back to this text. <coughs> I go back to this text. I draw our attention back to this text. This text is about a lost and dying world and the is provoked because of idolatry. How much more do you think he's provoked about people who claim to be believers who are caught in idolatry? How much more provoked do you think he is Regard to a church. I mean, if you don't understand that, read Revelation 2 and 3, for example. And you recognize the Spirit's provoked. Six out of the seven churches in, in, in Revelation 2 and 3. He's provoked. And he's opened up John's eyes to see, hasn't he? And John sits down and writes a letter because that's the best he could do. But the one thing that, going back tightly to Acts chapter 17, that you have to see is that the Spirit is provoked, he opens God's, he opens Paul's eyes to see, in seeing, Paul is provoked, and he does not do what 99.9% of the times happens. He does not go away. He does not build higher walls to protect him. He does not shelter in place. He goes to war. Doesn't he? He absolutely goes to war. He does whatever it takes that the glory of Christ would be proclaimed. He does whatever it takes that the light would shine in the midst of darkness. Does he not? Doesn't he? I think You see, it's really clear. I want you to notice also in verse 16, we've already mentioned it, but it says the spirit was provoked. If I may just pause it for just a second, just to challenge us, even with with this statement, I think it's so important. I want to ask us a question. If you look at your life, what actually does provoke you? If I look at my life, what does provoke me? I'm talking about the evidence of our, of our lives. Not, not the Sunday school answer what we know we should answer. We, we, you know the answer should be what? Jesus. It's the classic Sunday school answer, isn't it? And it's right. We know that Jesus should be the thing that provokes us. The, the, the lack of honor given Jesus, I mean. The lack of glory, the cl- lack of fame for Jesus should provoke us. We know that. The gospel of Jesus Christ should be the thing that provokes us. Shouldn't it be? It absolutely should. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking the science school answer. I'm asking, what does provoke us? What does move us? What does grieve us? I mean, if we're to be completely honest, we know that too often it's anything but the gospel of Jesus, isn't it? The evidence of our lives. What provokes us is how the politics turn out. What provokes us is is how the sports teams that we cheer for turn out. What provokes us is our health and our safety and our security. Our financial state. How our business is doing. Our friendships. Of how seemingly good our our familial relationships are. If our plans work out for our next vacation or not. The weather weather. (laughs) It really is, isn't it? Especially as it impacts our plans. It's intriguing, isn't it? The power goes out, our generator doesn't start, and we get what? Provoked. Provoked. (laughs) That's simple. Thank you, Tom. I mean, it's, it's incredible. When we start looking at the evidence of our lives, we start to recognize right away, wait a second. How far am I? How far am I away from the worship of Christ? How far am I from hearing the Spirit work? Because I know it's not the Holy Spirit that's provoking provoking me about the the weather. I know it's not the Holy Spirit provoking me about. How my sports team did. I know it's not the Holy Spirit that's provoking me with regard to whether the guy voted for one or not. I know it's not the Holy Spirit that's provoking me with regard to how my investments are doing or not. We all agree with that, right? Hope. So the question is what really provokes us? And then when we start asking ourselves, answering the question, what actually provokes me, I gotta stop and say, wait a second, now it gets real painful here now. Because if it's not the Holy Spirit that's provoking me for all those things, what is Yeah, spirit of darkness? The spirit from the from the other kingdom. And it starts to open my eyes to help me start to realize how easily and quickly I've wandered. I hope that makes sense. Lastly, and then we're going to close on this. You'll notice in verse 16, right in the very beginning, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and then he gets the rest of that. That little statement in the very beginning is an intriguing statement. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, because he asked them to come, right? Timothy and Silas, come. I could use your help, right? There's a lot of things going on here in Athens. While he was waiting for them, Paul determined, without Timothy and Silas here, this probably is the best time for me to speak up, so I think I should just be quiet. Not a chance. The timing isn't best right now. Right? You know, I thought it would be better if I waited to get here, and then, uh, then the three of us together will step up to the plane and do something about this. Is that, what, is that how Paul responded? Now, the text is really clear. If I waiting, he sees and is provoked, and he does what? He goes after it, right? But this isn't the best time. All alone? Not the best time at all! By the way, I, I find it, as an aside, I find it, it, it it's pretty interesting that nothing is mentioned about how he's hoping people pray for him for boldness. <laughs> he's just bold, isn't he? Isn't he? He's just bald. Why? What's that? Because the Spirit is not work in him. Right? The result is, he's like, this is not a passive waiting, is it? (laughs) It is totally active waiting. He's waiting for Timothy inside us. What does that waiting look like? Yo, Jews, let's talk. Hey, devout people, let's talk. Epicureans and Stoics, let's talk. And when Timothy and Silas show up at the scene sometime later, it doesn't change anything. Does it? No, not at all. There's nothing in here about, well, you know, not the best of times. I better wait. Get more reinforcements. No, what you hear with Paul is, if I live, it's for Christ. If If I... Die it's for Christ, or if I live die is for Christ. They quote scriptures. Yeah. The word in a season a season. Exactly. Second Timothy four close to the end of his life. He said, In season, out of season. Second Timothy four one. Pretty clear. Be at it, Paul tells Timothy. Now this sounds like a pretty out-of-season time. I mean it's Paul against an entire city. Isn't it? Who are steeped in in in, in Extreme philosophy and theology. And it's Heinz 57 varieties. Just because you win one one discussion, there's 56 more. Paul's like, huh, out of season? Let's go. Why? Because, again, the love of Christ controls it. He's saying things to provoke spiritual eyes. And it's all based upon Spirit having been working his life. And so as a result of Spirit being working his life, he's been doing what? He's been fellowshipping with his Redeemer. Hasn't he? We know the evidence is clear. We're 17 chapters in. We're 8 chapters in from his conversion. And the whole time, what has he been doing? Paul has, if I may use a, a T analogy, Paul has been steeped in Jesus. Hasn't he? He's been steeped in the gospel. <clears throat> He's been absolutely inundated, saturated with it. And so when the conflict comes, when the, when the contrast comes, he sees it because the Spirit opens his eyes to see. He becomes provoked because he loves the things of Jesus. The gospel. And the result is he responds. Again, as we've said numerous times before, friends, the issue is not. Wow. We better get provoked. We better start looking around. The answer is not. We better start start getting out there and start preaching. the real answer is, what am I saturated by? What am I in? Because that's what's informing me. Is it the prince of the power of the error that's provoking me? Or is it the spirit of God that's provoking me? I don't know about you, but I suspect when we look at this text that for a lot of us, we find whoa, I can't see that. From where I am, that's not in a different township. That's in a different continent from where I am. And I hope through this, this study and through this passage that we find ourselves recognizing what what God is presenting in Paul is real Christianity here. This is not. Isn't Paul amazing? Because this is a spirit work in a Christian. (laughs) And we've seen it, haven't we? We've seen it before. With, with, With these new believers who are rescuing Paul numerous times, right? At their own risk, they're rescuing Paul. Timothy and Silas stay back. We just saw it last week. At high risk. Why? Because of being saturated with Jesus and with the gospel. Peter, earlier on, with Paul and Peter and their various imprisonments. Isn't that exactly what we saw? We saw people saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we're seeing is this is what spirit-controlled living looks like. That's the point of Acts. The, the Acts we always call it the Acts of the Apostles. Remember, when we first started the study, we said this is not about the Acts of the Apostles. This is the act of what? The Holy Spirit working in the apostles and others. Correct? And that's what we're seeing every step of the way. This is what spirit work looks like. There's not a whole lot of camouflage, is there? Not a whole lot of camouflage in Christianity. Unless we think, well, that was different times, and there was a lot of idolatry back then, I want to remind you, there's a lot of idolatry. That never changes. The only thing that has changed is a Christian to become camouflaged. And the call of the text, if we give any call at all, is not to go out and try harder and get yourself provoked and go out and preach. That'll happen. <laughs> That'll happen, friends. As we repentantly turn to Jesus and repentantly become saturated and steeped in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It happens. It does. Every time. We're 17 chapters in and we have not seen one time when that does not happen. Not once. This is what happens. So let us pray and cry out to God, to soften our hard hearts, to draw us close once again, to forgive us for ignoring, for excusing, for minimizing, for grieving the Holy Spirit. Shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. It is a natural way to slowly but surely change our view of the gospel, to change our view of the world, to change our view of idolatry, to change our 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 priorities. It is a natural way of things. Which is why you said to be after today while it's still today. Let's of us get a cold or hard heart. It is the natural way of things. But you have not called us to the natural way. You've called us to the supernatural way. So we ask you, Lord, to stir us up. Draw us to repentance. Challenge us. Provoke us. Remind us. Open our eyes to see. And Lord, I pray you will give us the holy boldness to proclaim the truth be the Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. As we come to communion this morning, the first